It is time to answer some big questions about our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light, lasers, optics, and fascinating tech news. Each episode, you'll hear groundbreaking stories from around the world about the fibers of science, from its triumphant past to its audacious future. Brought to you by Photonics Media. today's episode, we're looking at a circus in Germany that has swapped out live animals for what appears to be holograms. We'll also be talking with UCLA's ambitious researcher, Dr. Aydan Ozjan, and what he's calling the democratization of technology. Starting off today, here are the top headlines. This is Joel Williams, associate editor at Photonics Media, and here are this week's top stories. Zeiss and Riken Innovation have entered into a strategic collaboration. The Coordinate Metrology Society has finalized their seven-member board of directors. Applied Photophysics has appointed Tim Flanagan as CEO. The National Science Foundation has released the first images from the Inui Solar Telescope. Researchers from the PTB and the Max Planck Institute used quantum logic spectroscopy to improve atomic measurements by a factor of one million. SPIE and the University of Central Florida have announced a $650,000 scholarship fund. Do you mind saying who you are and what it is that you do? My name is Aydan Özcan. I'm a faculty at UCLA School of Engineering. Great. And I'd like to ask you, it's been several years since uh, the last time you did an interview with us here at Photonics Media. What would you highlight as some of the most exciting developments in bioimaging over the last couple of years? Sure. Um, I think so much has been happening uh, in the area of, in general, biophotonics, imaging, and microscopy in specific. But if I, if I want to uh, single out one major uh, area that, that I think um, has been um, quite remarkable in its achievements, I would argue that that would be uh, the intersection of AI and imaging, computational imaging and microscopy. I think uh, it's been surprising researchers in, in microscopy and biophotonics field in terms of what it can do. And I think it's, it's an uh, area which is going to exponentially grow in the next several years that are ahead of us. And are, have these developments impacted early diagnosis or chronic conditions and diseases? I think, of course, the impact, uh, if you want to measure it with some clinical outcome, is always a slower process. It follows innovation, uh, and it takes a while for the innovation to uh, pass through regulations of the FDA and uh, convert into uh, you know, clinical trials and validation of impact and the, the next steps that come uh, after that. So. It's still early, at least for some of these emerging approaches, uh, to deliver uh, proof for, for that impact. But what, what I can say is that we're certainly seeing signs of transformations in the way that some of the clinical testing, clinical um, methods that are currently used in diagnosis, in primary diagnosis, are happening. They will be transformed in many ways. I can give you um, two examples on this, one from the perspective of computational imaging microscopy and how it's positioned to transform pathology, histopathology in specific. And another example uh, that I can give will be on point of care sensing. In the first one, recent research that happened in the first half of 2019 has opened up some unique avenues for changing the way that uh, for example, histopathologist slides are currently prepared. So whenever you give a biopsy, um, that biopsy, whether it's taken for an examination or during the surgery, uh, for example, to assess the uh, tumor margins during, during the uh, operation. In all of these cases, the tissue section, uh, tissue chunk uh, that, that's removed from the body, uh, goes through a sample preparation uh, step. 
Uh, it's a laborious, lengthy, and costly process. It takes time. Sometimes it takes more than a day. And uh, the point of this entire um, histochemical processing of tissue is for it to look colorful at the subcellular level, revealing different constituents of tissue so that diagnosticians, pathologists, can make uh, a diagnosis out of those microscopic images of the stained tissue. So this process is called uh, histological staining of tissue. It paints literally at the microscale and nanoscale tissue so that we can diagnose it. And this is a very old method. It's more than 100 years, more than a century that we've been staining tissue almost the same way. So now this is this is going to change through AI, through uh, deep neural nets. Uh, we've shown that in 2019 that you can actually stop this entire workflow for tissue staining and take native images or to fluorescence images of unprocessed, unstained, we call it label-free uh, uh, tissue, and transform these fluorescence grayscale images into stained versions of the same samples as if they were coming from pathology lab after a technologist worked on them and painted them. We call this virtual staining. And of course, virtual staining has been an idea, a wish for decades to change the game for histology and, and, and sample preparation in pathology. But the tools were, I think, um, compared to what we have today with convolutional neural nets, they were quite primitive in terms of what they can do. We've shown that you can actually take almost any type of tissue uh, and stain them with different types of stains, not just one most commonly used stain, uh, for example, H&E stain. We've shown that you can do more exotic spatial stains and show the value that these transformed images that look like coming from a, a lab processing tissue are nearly identical to um, what we generate. In fact, uh, we did blinded testing with histopathologists with, with giving them a mixture of images created by our machine learning deep neural nets and uh, created by standard methods coming from UCLA Health uh, to kind of show that they're equivalent in a blinded study. And we found that there's actually no statistic significant difference between the diagnosis created through our images versus through standard images. This is one example where um, uh, AI is going to transform the way that tissue is processed. It's a, it's a century-old field, and I think it's going to be transformed to be better, to be more standardized, to be faster, cheaper, and imagine, for example, during surgery, while the patient is still open there, you can do this in minutes rather than in half an hour or, or an hour, depending on the tissue stain combination. This is one example. Another example that I, I pointed to um, is sensing, uh, especially point of care sensing and how uh, machine learning models can help us empower inexpensive diagnostic tests to get multiplex to look at a panel of biomarkers with specificity and sensitivity coming close to essentially what you expect from lab-grade sensors. At the end of 2019, we had a paper on this uh, showing impact for diagnosing early-stage Lyme disease patients. It's a very difficult uh, to diagnose disease. Uh, it's a tick-borne uh, disease, uh, and a lot of patients are undiagnosed, especially at the very early stages because this disease is, is very complicated to diagnose and the clinical gold standard is also is, is tedious, a laboratory-based two-tier test. So we have actually created a, a paper-based, very inexpensive system, point-of-care test, that is powered by a deep neural net to look at multiple spots, each of which is profiling a certain antibody from the uh, human serum uh, and looking at a panel of antibodies uh, with a panel of antigens for basically understanding the uh, immunity of the patient and uh, from that using a neural net to predict if you're Lyme positive or Lyme negative. And we've achieved actually a, a very good results with blinded testing uh, coming from 
Lyme positive and Lyme negative patients uh, coming from a biobank to show that this approach is actually better than existing point of care tests by a big margin and also on par with the clinical two-tier uh, ground truth that is uh, oftentimes not easy to access, especially at the first site of infection, which is mostly happening, for example, out in the field for campers, etc. These are two examples from um, one from computational imaging, microscopy impacting pathology. Uh, more than a century old techniques are going to be transformed for the better. And the other one is for diagnosing a very difficult to diagnose disease like Lyme disease, where currently there is no FDA approved point of care test for replacing the two tier test, uh, the clinical ground truth. And I think this approach that we've shown uh, at the end of 2019 uh, can, can uh, certainly be a very useful and high impact test for screening, especially early Lyme patients with a good sensitivity and specificity. So I want to go back to this topic you've mentioned several times about the democratization of technology and how crucial our smartphones can be for developing and other third world countries. I'm curious uh, about these, these remote communities and your expectations for innovation as far as the impact on point of care with uh, the development of this new technology. My lab has been working on creating mobile instrumentation, mobile microscopes, mobile sensors for, in general, empowering field measurements, uh, measurements in harsh conditions. It could be resource-poor settings. It could be the home as well, because home needs better measurement tools, for example, to um, monitor aging populations or chronic patients. So my lab in general aims to democratize advanced measurement tools so that their functions, their performance levels match what you expect from lab-grade counterparts, but they should be portable, cost-effective, and they should work in harsh environments with least training. So that's essentially what I mean by democratization of, in general, imaging and sensing tools or advanced measurement instrumentation. and. Deep neural nets, deep learning in general, has been giving us some unique opportunities to actually further improve our tool set when it comes to mobile microscopy, mobile sensing, and improve their imaging speed, imaging throughput, and at the same time giving some unique functionalities to these mobile instrumentations. So today we're actually seeing a revolution in our instruments. And this certainly applies to some of the uh, work that we've done with these mobile imaging systems, integrated with mobile phones or using mobile phone components. Um, in one recent work in 2019, we've shown that you can actually build holographic uh, cytometers. These are systems that can look at liquid samples, air samples, uh, and screen a large volume of a liquid or, or uh, air with a very high throughput, looking at flowing objects at a very high resolution and at the same time at a high throughput. Processing, for example, in one of these uh, demonstrations, we've shown that you can process 100 milliliter to 500 milliliter in an hour uh, using these uh, these cytometers. This cytometer is, is a very inexpensive system. It's it's handheld, literally, and it can um, be easily moved around, and everything is controlled by, for example, a, a laptop to provide you a local system that can, uh, for example, screen algae uh, contamination in oceans and quantify that. This system is entirely powered today by deep learning, deep neural nets that are taking holograms of these particles as they're flowing by, whether they're cells or bigger particles, without being clogged uh, with a very high throughput. We can look at all the way from micro-scale objects to even bigger objects, maybe even maybe um, millimeter-scale objects at a very large throughput. And deep learning has been instrumental here to reconstruct these holograms in unique ways, to extend the depth of field of these microscopes and also make them faster in their reconstruction. Holography is a very old field, right? And the tool set for reconstructing a hologram, processing a hologram, uh, has been out there. And many researchers 
uh, hundreds if not thousands of different research labs over the last several decades have contributed to various powerful reconstruction engines for processing holograms. Now this is changing. Now the entire field is actually moving to uh, processing holograms with deep learning, reconstructing holograms with unique capabilities. So a lot of these mobile instrumentation running on smartphones or uh, standalone devices with CMOS images taken from smartphones are now getting more and more powerful with their reconstruction engine powered by deep learning. For example, we take a hologram captured by a single frequency of light, single wavelength of light, and transform it into a reconstructed image that is mimicking the contrast, resolution, and depth of field of a bright field microscope that has a broadband spectrum. So for the first time in the history of holography, we can now reconstruct a hologram, single frequency, single wavelength hologram, with the contrast of a bright field microscope. It's the best of both worlds, we call it, because you have the 3D imaging capability of holography. From a single snapshot, you can go to different sections within the sample. And you have the advantage of bright field holography, bright field uh, microscopy, because bright field imaging has a beautiful contrast, beautiful resolution, free from speckle and other interference artifacts of holography. So you kind of merge the advantage of both systems. We call this actually bright field holography, meaning that a hologram is reconstructed with the contrast, spatial and spectral contrast of a bright field microscope. These are very unique opportunities that are empowering actually our instrumentation to get more powerful, better contrast, better resolution, extended depth of field. And certainly has implications, as I said, for uh, screening of bodily fluids, screening of contamination in water, screening of oceans for algae blooms, which is a major problem globally. We're losing fish, and fishermen are, are losing a lot of funds, money, um, because of uh, algae blooms. And we believe measurement would be the key to, um, to avoid those losses. Another major application of this that my lab demonstrated in 2019 and 2018 before then uh, is uh, screening of air pollution using these kinds of holographic mobile microscopy tools, uh, looking into particulate matter and understanding density and size of the, the contaminants in air. And, and recently, um, um, in 2019, we've also shown that you can look into um, detection of pollen particles, mold spores in air without the use of any labels, without the use of any um, stains or tags, uh, just straight capture the particles from air and look at their spectral content, native label-free spectral content and sh shape size to differentiate different types of pollen from the background and recognize them. We've shown more than 94% accuracy in recognizing different types of pollen, three different types of pollen, and two different types of uh, mold spores uh, using these types of systems. So all in all, I think these are great times because they're we're going to be seeing a, a transformative change in the capabilities of, in general, instrumentation, but certainly for microscopy and sensing sensors, we will see a, a unique plethora of opportunities ahead of us for advancing their performance while still making them cost-effective and portable uh, to meet the needs for field measurements. As this technology is innovated and expanded upon, it's doing a great job detecting the pollutants? Do you perceive a time where it's innovating and uh, certain diseases are, or people with diseases are benefiting from the innovations with this technology? Certainly, I think this line of work has generated quite a bit of IP, patent applications, issued patents, and pending patents. They've also been commercialized and currently still being used. I had startup companies that at different stages now with some of these products uh, moving forward in their life cycle with other partners in industry. Um, some others are at an earlier stage. So it's a, it's a cycle of different stages for these products kind of uh, making their way into uh, market, into users. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here. As I said, the home is, is a very important avenue for, for some of these devices to be used, especially looking into chronic patients. Diabetes, 
and uh, cardiovascular diseases. These are um, some of the uh, most um, pressing issues that we have in the United States, especially. So um, we're also funded by um, National Science Foundation for um, uh, developing new technologies for underrepresented, underserved populations in the United States. This is a consortium of four universities, UCLA, Texas A&M, Rice University, and Florida International University. Four of us are joining forces to uh, create unique point-of-care technologies, unique variables, and uh, information systems, uh, platforms, smart algorithms that will be merging all these uh, different measurements to make predictions and uh, improve healthcare outcomes. All of these are essentially being worked out. This is a 10-year project. We're now finishing our second year and just entered our third year. Uh, this is a 10-year, very large-scale project um, approaching $40 million. So I think we will see more and more innovations and uh, early-stage prototypes being commercialized to make an impact for facially chronic diseases and better manage, especially at the home, these uh, patients. Uh, same idea applies for all, obviously aging populations and elderly at the home. So the home itself presents some unique challenges and opportunities for creating um, uh, mobile measurement tools. And in addition to this, I think obviously field measurements, point of care medicine, these are other areas that uh, some of these devices have been used as products and will continue to advance from their prototype stage to product stage as we make progress with these um, devices, their technology readiness level, and how they are translated into um, commercial space through spin-offs or other major companies licensing them. Now, Dr. Ajahn, I want to turn the focus a bit back on you and your story. You received your PhD from Stanford University Electrical Engineering Department. Would you be able to say what was driving you to pursue this degree in your early education? So um, I, I was always interested in um, physics and math and the intersection of those two uh, fields. And it seemed to me engineering was a good balance of those two, uh, where applied physics and math come together to build uh, systems and to build essentially solutions to um, uh, needs. To, and, and that's why I, I always uh, thought engineering was a good choice for someone like myself who enjoyed uh, math and physics. And um, for me, um, I always wanted to have a PhD at the beginning of middle school and high school because I thought doing uh, research and chasing the unknown unknown was was a great venture. And um, and that's why I kind of uh, wanted to pursue always a PhD, and that's where I am. Were there factors in your youth that contributed to your interest in microscopes or biophotonics? Uh, interestingly, uh, during my PhD, I did not uh, have a focus on biophotonics. I built uh, basically um, uh, measurement techniques for looking into um, uh, characterization of materials specifically for uh, nonlinear optics and telecommunications, optical telecommunications applications. So I was more uh, an applied physicist, an electrical engineer, uh, working on new measurement in, uh, instrumentation, measurement tools, uh, with a heavy focus on nonlinear optics. But um, toward the end of my PhD, I kind of realized that a lot of these techniques that I've been uh, working on creating uh, have applications for also imaging tissue, for example, in 3D, or characterizing tissue. That's how I understood that measurement science is actually qu quite broad, and it shares the same common fundamentals in many areas. And I, I pivoted my research from nonlinear optics to biophotonics, understanding that still tissue cells need to be imaged and characterized, obviously, uh, and I thought I could contribute something and learn a lot from the field. And, and, and toward the end of my PhD, I started to explore that. And after uh, finishing my PhD, I continued doing that at Mass General Hospital as part of Harvard Medical School and learned a lot from, from, uh, from my mentors and uh, 
And since then, you know, uh, I've been in biophotonics field, exploring, learning new things, and uh, trying to contribute my own uh, in my own ways. As someone who has found so much success early on in his career, from the amount of awards you've won to the patents that you own at such a young age, what would you say is your advice to college students pursuing PhDs right now, or those who are looking to make an impact in the biophotonics field? So I think uh, a lot of applied scientists and engineers want to have impact, right? So I've found that the intersection of a novel idea with an absolute real need, um, that intersection set is the key. Sometimes I see some early scholars, young scholars, get very excited about a novel idea or some method that they uh, came up with or that they have recently learned. Um, but they lack the uh, need. They lack a true need. So they don't have a good answer um, about how else this same thing can be done. And why should I care for your solution? How is it differential or how is it better? And what kind of a need does it solve? Answer. Those are, I think, um, sometimes questions that we miss, especially at our early stage uh, careers. So novelty itself is not enough. You must really solve a need that cannot be solved today as good as your solution. Sometimes you have the need, so that you clearly understand um, the need. It's absolutely nothing else that can do it. And uh, yes, there's a pressing need for something, and you identify that. That's also success, but you must match it with some innovation. Um, and I, ideally, you have to really have, operate as much as you can at the intersection of uh, a pressing need that urgently needs a solution and a novel idea that solves that better than anything out there. That intersection, if you can position yourself at that intersection, uh, you know, you're going to create impact one way or another. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I think that's something that interdisciplinary training would be very helpful for students to get to better understand um, both the need from an interdisciplinary perspective and also novelty from an interdisciplinary perspective so that you can actually position yourself at that intersection, valid intersection, from the perspectives of many disciplines. And, and that's how you can actually uh, come up with something that solves a pressing need better than anything else out there. Uh, those are the unique perspectives that uh, interdisciplinary training uh, would pro probably uh, provide you. So that's my two cents. Now, you mentioned in a presentation last year that about 10 years ago, we could barely see a red blood cell. Before we talked about looking into the future, if you were to look into the future 10 years from now or even 100, could you make a prediction about any breakthroughs that we might see in the industry that will be particularly significant? Sure, yes. That is something that I always use in my talks. Like More than 10 years ago, with a mobile phone-based microscope, I could barely see a red blood cell. In the first generations of mobile phone-based microscopes that we built in our lab, we we would see red blood cells, but that was it. And um, a red blood cell is like seven, eight microns in, in diameter. And nowadays, you can see a single DNA molecule. Several years ago, we published papers on mobile microscopy tools that can see individual viruses, single DNA molecules, uh, double-stranded, labeled with fluorophores, and um, sized with one kilobase pair sizing accuracy. It's come a long way, and I think that's that's very exciting. And it enabled many applications for point-of-care medicine. Uh, products have been built based on these technologies, commercialized successfully, and currently in use. And many uh, many field uh, testing uh, has been done, is continuing to be done pro bono with our partners, with our colleagues from medical schools around the world, using our devices in different Ways. And it's led to uh, very exciting collaborations across the globe. And I'm proud to say that we've been collaborating with more than 20 different groups uh, at different parts of the world uh, with different countries, disseminating these tools to others, having them come by our lab and essentially use these technologies, uh, get trained on them and customize them for their needs so that they can take it with them. So this was a push-pull relationship that built something very exciting, uh, both academically uh, at the same time, 
intellectually and at the same time commercially. And 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 uh, one of my spin-off companies has been acquired by another one, taking essentially uh, some of our inventions to another level, and still being actually uh, worked out with different products in the market. So as as for the future, um, what is what is kind of going to keep us alive and uh, interested in doing science for the next decades? I see um, a huge need today to change our existing instrumentation because um, most of our instruments today, regardless of the field that they're being used, they have been created before computers existed. The fundamental ideas of our instrumentation, the working principles, are stemming from work that did not have computers in mind. And certainly not the current level of AI that we have. So which means this is the older generation of instruments that we have deployed, we have been using in our research labs, in clinical settings, and in various different professional settings. That needs to change, and that is going to change. That's a huge opportunity for us to create new instruments that are designed with AI in mind. I call this thinking instruments that we are going to see. So various different communities, including biophotonics community, will work on designing better instruments uh, that will eventually be thinking. They will not necessarily sample and then act on it using a computer. This is what we today do. We sample pixels, voxels, data, and then process it. But this creates a huge bottleneck, tons of data that needs to be processed fast. It's a lot of problems with battery use. Form factor of these instruments uh, is an issue. They're very costly, very expensive, and they need to um, harness a lot of data. Thinking instrumentation will be much, much, much different in the way that it's going to operate. It's going to merge, blend, essentially machine learning at the hardware level and will sample as needed, will will be significantly more power efficient, data efficient, and they will be task specific. We will see the emergence of task specific instrumentation that can think and on demand decide on, for example, the modality, resolution, field of view, depth of field, and what else to do. So it will merge, depending on the task, an execution of how to sample, what to sample, where to sample. So this is actually a very exciting uh, and um, an evolving field that we're seeing early signs, but it's going to be just the beginning and it's going to be evol evolving much more. Imagine, for example, a system that you want to um, you want to swallow and 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 it needs to actually sample the space in the GI. This is exactly a problem for a thinking type of a sensor, thinking type of a microscope. It needs the on-demand know where to navigate, uh, where to sample, how to sample, and switch between modalities as it decides on what is what is important. So let's say you charge that kind of a system for taking a biopsy from the most relevant uh, place of interest or potentially uh, carry out tissue as, as it finds. Those are very difficult problems to solve. But for that, you will need to fuse AI to make such an instrument feasible in terms of its form factor, in terms of its power efficiency, etc. So we will see, I think, I think uh, this emergence of thinking instrumentation and merge of AI with optical hardware so that it gets uh, task-specific and more efficient in what it does. In this line of work, starting from 2017 and 18, we've done some very interesting work on diffractive deep neural nets, deep neural networks which essentially is using deep learning framework to design diffractive systems that all optically compute a, a desired task. Imagine a volume that is composed of several different layers, where each layer is, let's say, a transmissive layer, and you can control, uh, let's say, the phase information, the thickness information, and or the amplitude information of all these pixels that form one layer. You can divide every layer into smaller pixels 
and you can control the amplitude and and or phase of the light that passes through this layer. And you can put one layer after another layer after another, form a diffractive network that processes light to solve a puzzle, to solve essentially a computational problem. We call this framework diffractive neural network framework, meaning that those pixel values of each one of those layers and many layers working together are trainable parameters. And depending on the task of interest, you train them collectively so that that task is executed while light is diffracting and passing through these layers. It's great for statistical inference, generalization, meaning that it's actually doing tasks that today's electronic deep neural nets are doing. For example, you can design a diffractive system that recognizes uh, different handwritten digits. Let's say if you write in front of you, um, there's a paper, let's say, if you write five, and show it to this diffractive system and shine light through it, it's going to recognize that you've written five. It generalized and learned what a five means for handwritten digits. Same idea for zero and all the, all the way to nine. So it learned the general statistical features of different digits and inferiors just like a machine learning model does. But it does it through light-matter interaction. It does it through... Uh, actually light diffracting within this multi-layer system. Low latency, meaning that inference is done almost at the speed of light. It's not requiring much power except the illumination power. All these layers are passive. And it's parallelizable, meaning that you can actually print bigger layers, larger scale wafers that are processing information in parallel as light is passing through. So it means it can have a huge bandwidth to process information at multiple channels. All of these are huge advantages. And uh, we see that this kind of a framework is, I think, um, a superset of a lens. Today, if you look at, for example, how today's computer vision, machine learning uh, methods uh, running in GPUs, etc., how they're positioned, they sample information, visual information, through a camera. Uh, in front of a CMOS image or a CCD charge coupled device, there's a lens that captures, you know, whether it's a scene of a city or your face that you want to recognize or microscopic images of tissue sample that you want to recognize, for example, a cancer lesion. All the AI that does that is using a perfect imaging system or some form of a lens-based imaging system to acquire the information at the macro scale or micro scale. We believe diffractive networks like these that I've described are going to form some unique hybrid systems that will compute as it's forming a digital image that AI will act on. We call this hybrid optical and electronic computation and computational imaging or sensing. And uh, the trainable nature of these diffractive elements is very appealing because then you can jointly train them with electronic neural nets, meaning that you can actually uh, train a front-end diffractive system that digitizes the information and then processes it with a standard electronic neural net. Our work in 2019 showed the utility of these hybrid systems, especially compressing information, meaning that for today's AI, let's say, to recognize certain features of data, let's say, handwritten digits. You need a certain focal plane array, a certain number of pixels per image. Beyond that, you cannot recognize because the image is undersampled. That means today's AI, to recognize features of interest in, for example, a picture or a movie, you need to have sufficient pixels per feature. But diffraction networks integrated with these uh, relatively simple deep neural nets have shown that you can compress information and undersample information so that the the collective system, hybrid system, still works as accurate as a purely camera-based, lens-based system that has more pixels. That's especially important for uh, low power, high frame rate, low megapixel or low pixel count imaging systems that you will need to install everywhere to recognize certain features, certain things very frequently 
and very rapidly. Imagine, for example, an autonomous car with many cameras around the car to recognize humans, but just humans. So you need extremely low power systems that can do this with an enormous frame rate so that it's a safe environment for some of these um, challenging tasks uh, of, for example, having autonomous cars in very crowded streets, etc. So these are enabled by diffractive neural net framework and its integration with electronic neural nets forming hybrid systems which all optically process at the front end a specific information that's based on tasks that you have and then deliver that information in a compressed manner to the subsequent layer of the, uh, electronic networks to form a very efficient high frame rate and low power uh, system. So these are uh, you know, some, some very exciting, I think, avenues that we will see how they will be designing better uh, and thinking imaging systems that can recognize um, uh, tasks more efficiently and faster than today's uh, camera-based uh, AI systems. In addition to this, another very unique aspect of diffractive networks is their use for designing optical systems, optical components. So a diffractive neural net can be designed by a deep learning-based method to do um, generalization, to do inference, statistical inference. But at the same time, it can also perform deterministic tasks. For example, it can it can process information in a deterministic way. For example, uh, it can take a certain spectral information and and encode it in a different way. It can do wavelength demultiplexing. At the same time, separating different channels of frequency into different parts of the space. So it can do a lot of different types of task-specific deterministic optical systems that need to be designed. For designing such uh, things, we've been for decades relying on intuition, uh, on our understanding of physics, light-matter interaction, and designing them based on certain principles. But deep learning and deep neural nets, when they design a diffractive system for a specific task, they give us some very non-intuitive solutions. And our recent results from the end of 2019 have shown some utility of this for specifically engineering spectrum uh, on demand for a given task of interest. So to, to sum up, another very unique angle of diffractive networks is the design space that it provides for even deterministic optical systems. It provides non-intuitive solutions to a specific task at hand. And that's, I think, where AI is very powerful. It spits out non-intuitive solutions that we would never come up with because it's working with a certain optimization framework that is not necessarily how our uh, training uh, as a physicist or an engineer or a applied scientist, uh, we, we, we think differently. And our solutions have certain elegancy uh, in terms of their design, but at the same time, it doesn't explore the entire design space as AI can very efficiently explore and surprise us with what they find out. That's Dr. Aydan Ozjan. He's the Chancellor's Professor at UCLA. Dr. Ozjan, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, my pleasure. Today's episode is brought to you by the Photonics Media Bookstore. Visit photonics.com store for books about photonics technology, posters, apparel, and more. Use the coupon code PODCAST for a 20% discount off your first purchase. The journey to cruelty-free circus acts in 2020 didn't begin with a bang or clashing cymbals, but with the whisper of discovery over centuries and the curiosity of light. In 500 BC, Pythagoras revealed that light emanated from a luminous object to the eye. 200 years later, Aristotle decided that light was nothing of substance and indefinable. Ptolemy discovered the process of light refraction, and then a thousand years later, Arab mathematician Al-Hazan introduced the concept of a light ray. Just before his death in 1673, French priest Ignace Gaston Pardy published his manuscript, Complete Optical Treatise, where the first notion of wave theory was proposed. In 1678, Dutch physicist Christian Huygens proposed his own wave theory to the Paris Academy de Sciences, 
which was later published in 1690 as the Treatise on Light. In 1971, Dennis Gaber delivered his Nobel Lecture on Holography, detailing the electron microscope he used to create an interference pattern he would later call a hologram. But of course he mentioned Thomas Young. In 2005, historian Andrew Robinson published his exuberantly titled biography, The Last Man Who Knew Everything, Thomas Young, the anonymous polymath who proved Newton wrong, explained how we see, cured the sick, and deciphered the Rosetta Stone, among other feats of genius. In 1801, Thomas Young resurrected Huygens's century-old wave theory, becoming, as Gaber said, the first person to, quote, demonstrate convincingly that light added to light could produce a darkness effect known as interference. But back to Gaber. On Easter Sunday of 1947, Dennis Gaber began developing his theory on electron microscopy by reconstructed wavefronts. Here's where things get complicated. Dennis Gaber's goal was to solve the aberration known as atomic lattices. In his Nobel lecture, he never explains what an atomic lattice is. There's no need, of course, because he's speaking to a room full of physicists. I'm not a physicist, and there are currently no physicists around for miles. But this is what I think happened. When Gaber looked through his electron microscope, the device was using a beam of light to scan and photograph an object. Both the light and the object are emitting a wavelength, and when those two waves collide, they create a lattice effect. This means when Gaber goes to take a picture with the electron microscope, he's taking a blurry picture. But on Easter Sunday of 1947, Gaber said, why not take the bad picture, but get one that contains the whole information of the object and then correct it by optical means. Gaber used an electron microscope to produce interference patterns between the wavelength of the beam of light and the light in the background of negative photographs. He called this interference pattern a hologram from the Greek word holos, meaning the whole, because the photograph contained the whole information. Following this, Gaber wrote, the hologram was then reconstructed with light in an optical system which corrected the aberrations of the electron optics. Dennis Gaber was no nonsense. He spoke both directly and judiciously, and yet his tone was whimsical, like an over-the-top Bond villain. Here's Gaber talking about the science of holography while giving his Nobel lecture to a special audience at Imperial College in London in February of 1972, a few months after winning his award. Anybody has ever seen laser light uh, is struck how disagreeable it is because a sheet of white paper looks like crawling with ants. Now the crawling is put into it by the restless eye, but the roughness is really there, it's objective. Today, the term hologram has been popularized, saturated, and woven into our lexicon. As articles came flooding in that Circus Roncalli's founder and director, Bernard Paul, had swapped out live animal acts with dancing holographic images, the word hologram was used colloquially. But Bernard Paul's circus doesn't use holograms. What are they using? Well, to explain that, we first have to take a trip back to Christmas Eve of 1862. The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain was written by Charles Dickens in 1848. It follows the story of Redlaw, a chemistry professor who often agonizes over the wrong done to him in his past. A spirit that looks just like Redlaw starts haunting him, trying to bargain with him, saying it can help Redlaw, quote, forget the sorrow, wrong, and trouble you have known. The novella was quickly picked up by playhouses, and on Christmas Eve of 1862, it found its way to the Royal Polytechnic Institution. In 1862, inventor Henry Dirks developed the Dirksian Phantasmagoria, his version of the long-established Phantasmagoria performances where magic lanterns projected frightening images onto the wall during performances. Dirks tried to sell his idea to theaters, but it required that theaters be completely rebuilt to support the effect, and theaters weren't willing to put up that kind of money. Later in the year, Dirk set up a booth at the Royal Polytechnic showing his device, where it was seen by fellow inventor, John Henry Pepper. Pepper realized that Dirk's method could be modified to make it easier to incorporate into existing theaters. 
Instead of using a reflecting glass perpendicular to the theater floor and reflecting actors directly underneath the audience, as Dirk proposed, Pepper tilted his glass to a 45-degree angle and placed actors lying on their sides in a pit in front of the audience. When a stage is arranged into two separate rooms, the lighting in one room can be increased while the lights in the main room are dimmed. By doing this, Pepper was able to create a reflection that seemed to appear out of thin air. Pepper debuted his device on a larger scale during the Christmas Eve performance of The Haunted Man and the Ghost Bargain, where audience were said to have been amazed and fellow scientists were intrigued. Today, the illusion is still in effect and can be seen at Disney's The Haunted Mansion or Coachella festivals showcasing deceased artists like in 2012 with Tupac's concert or in 2014 with Michael Jackson. But Bernard Paul's not using the Pepper's Ghost illusion. So why did I take us down that rabbit hole? Because these non-holograms look just like one of Pepper's ghosts. So much so that anyone who isn't saying Paul's elephants are holograms is saying that Circus Roncalli is using Pepper's ghost. But according to Dan Novi of MIT Media Lab, Paul's animals are projections that rely on a material called scrims. Scrims are these lightweight, semi-transparent sheets that create a floating 2D illusion when projectors are shined on them. While the light-based simulacrums accurately capture the look of the animals, they're not true holograms. True holograms have two distinguishing features, parallax and accommodation. Parallax is the ability to walk around the elephant and see all its different sides. Accommodation is that thing your eyes do when you focus on an object and everything around the object sort of blurs. You can do that with a hologram. You can't do that with a scrim. But then there's Daniel Smalley, a BYU professor of electrical and computer engineering who uses lasers to create 3D volumetric images. He says it isn't important whether the circus is using real holograms, projections, or even Pepper's ghost. The projected images are mesmerizing, they're engaging, and made to scale, and most importantly, they're a step forward in the elimination of animal cruelty and circus acts. That'll do it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our guest, Idon Ozjan. Our engineers are Alan Shepard and Brian Healy. Our featured artist is Kid Animal out of Los Angeles. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite music app. Thank you most of all to you, our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a story or you just want to reach out, you can email us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Subscribe wherever you may be listening and never miss a new episode. You can also subscribe to this podcast on our website, photonics.com slash podcast, where you will find episode notes, links to the complete stories you heard, and some interesting side stories that didn't make it in. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. You've been listening to a Photonics Media production.